Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and once again, we're recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is an actor, producer, director, and one of the most successful and original television and film writers of the last 60 years. And frankly, when we found out he was willing to do this podcast, we were thrilled. As a performer, you've seen him on TV shows like Murphy Brown, Will and Grace, 30 Rock and The Daily Show, and as one of the most popular guest hosts of Saturday Night Live, hosting that show on 10 separate occasions, a record at that time. He also has done memorable acting work in movies, including Taking Off, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Gloria, Eating Raul, Shortcuts, Defending Your Life, The Player, and First Family, which he also directed. But it's as a writer he's left his most indelible mark on the 20th century culture, writing satire and sketch comedy on The Steve Allen Show, The Gary Moore Show, and That Was the Week That Was, as well as creating or co-creating three TV shows we've discussed and celebrated at length on this very podcast. Quark. Captain Nice, and one of television's most enduring and well-loved comedies, Get Smart. And as for the big screen, well, he scripted a few films you may have heard of, including Heaven Can Wait, which he also co-directed, Catch-22, The Owl and the Pussycat, Watch Up Doc, To Die For, and, of course, an obscure little picture called The Graduate. Please welcome to the show one of the great comic minds of his time and a man who had the good fortune of meeting Humphrey Bogart when he was a kid, the legendary Buck Henry. Thank you for that beautiful Beautiful endorsement. If filled with lies, it was still beautiful. <laughs> As so many lies are. <laughs> I, I'm very excited now because uh, I I had a guest last week, Bobcat Goldthwait, and now I have you. And with the three of us, this makes a kind of a reunion of an old great screen comedy. Do you remember which one? <laughs> oh, gosh. And what are the uh, facets? Was, they, there was oh. a horse in it. Okay, we'll turn all the cards over. We, <laughs> I think he doesn't us, want to remember. <laughs> <laughs> all of us appeared in the Bob Goldthwaite comedy, Hot to Trot. Oh, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were talking about something else <laughs> that I couldn't remember. That horse movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking the Mars Brothers are in two movies with horses. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, horse feathers for one. And Day at the Day Races. Day at the Races. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Yeah, that one wasn't the Mar- wasn't quite the Marx Brothers level of quality. Yeah, they they started falling in quality pretty quick. Now, what? Tell us your real name, Buck. Fred Sankol Papashaniska. <laughs> <laughs> it's similar to my it's, own. <laughs> it's my married name. <laughs> He, he gets very excited when there's a Jewish fellow on the show, Buck. I haven't seen any around. <laughs> <laughs> but you're Henry Zuckerman, right, from New York City, from the Upper East Side. That's, that's true. Yeah. Now, you had, uh, you said when you changed it, well, one was you were, one of the reasons you were doing a production in Cape Cod. And the manager of the production, they wouldn't put on the show if he kept his own name, because it was a Jewish name. That was true all through the business. So that's why all these old great comics like Jack Benny, George Burns, Jerry Lewis, all changed their names? Yes. And you also said, and this one gave me chills, that another reason you changed it, for a while your passport was still under your old name. And yes. you had to legally change it to Buck Henry because back then there were hijackings and quite often the hijackers would line people up and go, okay, we're pulling out all the Jews out of this group. Yes. Yeah. No, I, and that was one of the reasons you, you changed it because you didn't want to be identified as a Jew. And I, if, I was if, traveling all the time. In those years. And they kept throwing people out of uh, planes for shooting them in the head. And uh, I thought, I'd feel really stupid if one of these things happened and I hadn't taken certain precautions. So you went with a safer name. You went with the, with the, uh, the Gentile name, as it were. Mm-hmm. Buck Henry. Tell us about something that was in the intro, Buck, because we, we talked about you meeting Bogey as a kid. And, of course, you, you, know, you come from a showbiz family. Your mother was a famous actress, Ruth Taylor. Yeah, my father and Bogart were close friends, which is how I got to know him. What what was Bogart like? Was he friendly? Yes. Tell us about your mom, Ruth Taylor. Yeah, what she, about her? She was a silent screen actress. She starred in one of the great lost films of the Hollywood golden years. You know, there there's a book of Hollywood's lost films, mm-hmm. films of which there are no... No prints that you can run. Yeah, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was that film, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she was the original Lorelei Lee? Yes. So you grew up around writers and theater people. I did. Yeah. Also, a name that, two names that pop up from your childhood. Who were Arthur and Hilda? Uh, My brother and sister in New Jersey. So these were totally fabricated? Totally, yes. Yeah. So, So you just wanted like these... Playmates to have. I thought it was more interesting when people asked me whom I grew up with, if I could reference Arthur and Hilda, which none of my parents' friends ever had ever heard of. So I could hear them sometimes going into another room with them and saying, Ruthie, you never said anything about Buck's brother and sister. And they would say, What the fuck are you talking about? And, uh, so you were already, as a kid, getting into this smart-ass joking around. 
Yes, well, we knew all the famous practical jokers of the time. My father was one of them. My father was one of the original crew of, I think it was six, his Royal Stock Exchange guys. And there were four or five of them that made their reputation by set up, setting up these elaborate practical jokes, many of which ran afoul of the law, which was their charm. <laughs> Interesting. Now, we, we were talking before we went on about the characters you played on Saturday Night Live. And one uh, was a pretty perverted one called Uncle Roy. Yeah. And you were like a babysitter, and um, Gilda Radner and Lorraine Newman were two little girls. Yep. And you would basically uh, get, you were basically a pedophile in those. But a likable one. Yes. <laughs> the little girls loved me. That's all that mattered. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you would get them to lift their skirts up, and you'd take pictures and then ride on your lap. Well, well, Buck, you always said that you would. The, the reason the right, one of the reasons the writers loved you and loved when you hosted is that you were willing to do things that other hosts weren't willing to do. Yeah, I like to look in the uh, rejected tray. Oh yeah, those were where the jokes and the sketches that were really interesting landed. And 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 Uncle Roy was among them. Yeah, yeah. There were only two of them. Warren would usually say to me, "We got a very strange one here. You want to look at it?" And I would say, "Yes." <laughs> Please let me look at strange ones. Yeah, people talk about the controversy of Uncle Roy. They remember more than there were. There were actually only two. Yeah. And you would have that wonderful last line when you'd look into the camera. It was when Jane Curtin, I believe it was, said, oh, you're you're one of a kind, Roy. And you would turn to the camera and say, oh, there are more of us out there than you think. <laughs> <laughs> I had this self-serving fantasy mm -hmm. that all over America— Little girls were turning from their position on the floor near the TV set, turned to look at their mothers and fathers and saying something about their Uncle Roy to the horror <laughs> of their parents. Interesting. There was one very funny bit on Saturday night where you were like this boring radio host who was talking about tax-free municipal bonds. It's a great one. I couldn't get anyone to call. Yeah. <laughs> and then you kept the subject matter to get people riled up. Like one of them, I think, was uh, no toilets for the blind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Hitler, boy, do we need him now. <laughs> Have you seen this sketch recently or you committed it to memory? I remember this. That's great. I remember this because you were desperately... Ready to get people angry to call in. I remember you playing Ron Nesson, too, Nixon's press secretary, or Ford's, I guess. And we talked, too, before we turn on the mics, we were talking about one of your favorites, maybe your favorite, the Lord and Lady Douchebag sketch from the... Uh... <laughs> I love Lord and Lady Douchebag. I can watch it all the time. It's wonderful. Full of great gags. And Harry Shearer in the last season of uh, the original cast, 79. And we were saying that was right before you came on, Gil. Yeah, that... that, that was a bad time period uh, when I was on. Gilbert had the misfortune of being in the replacement cast, Buck. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I always say, it's like if in the middle of Beatlemania, they got rid of John, Paul, George, and Ringo and just hired four other schmucks. <laughs> Tell us about writing for Steve Allen. Tell us about uh, how you got, how, I know it was a short-lived show. It didn't last, but... 
I've heard you say that he was the one person you wanted to work for and you, you, you got to. Well, he hired people that no one else would hire. I mean, he had Lenny Bruce on. Mm-hmm. There were no other front guys for a TV show that would do it. He had singers that nobody cared about. Right. And he's a visionary. And I think David Letterman always said he modeled himself in the beginning. He modeled himself after Steve Allen. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And when you got there, you they partnered you. And I've heard you talk about this guy uh, uh, who's sadly no longer with us, but a very funny guy named Stan Burns. Yeah. Who went on to write things for like Flip Wilson and the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. But you, it's it's fun the way you talk about him and how he would come up with 10 jokes for any subject, any event. If something happened overnight that was tragic or weird, I would call Stan Burns first thing in the morning and say, Stan, so-and-so died or so-and-so fell out of a boat and all this, and he'd do 10 jokes on it in 10 seconds. Funny guy. You said he was sight-gagging his way through life. I love that expression. What does that mean? Well, he was also the inspirational writer for Jonathan Winters. Mm-hmm. He was visual, too. Yeah. And then he became half of Burns and Marmor, right? And then you used them on Get Smart. Yes. Yeah. Now, we have something else in common. Uh, we can both claim we were in Aladdin. Now, I was in the Disney version of Aladdin, and you were in a production in North Carolina. I was in the famed traveling production of Aladdin and his wonderful lamp. You probably don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what year are we talking about, Buck? I don't know. About, uh, yeah. 50-something. 50-something, okay. okay. then in North Carolina, there was a, a blizzard that started, and you basically escaped through the back of the hotel I climbed down the, uh, the fire ladder. <laughs> I ran across several fields and hitchhiked my way to New York. Wow. How, how long did that take? It was something like 27 rides. Wow. Oh, my God. And, and you said you practically froze to death out there because it, it was very a- cold. And people kept asking me to leave their vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> Offensive behavior on my part. Oh, really? What was you doing or saying? I was disagreeing with something the driver was saying, usually political. <laughs> so it took 27 rides to get there. It took almost th- three days. I found this interesting, too. We're all New Yorkers, and you were talking about when you first started doing stage that there was something called the subway uh, circuit. Yeah. And you you would perform all over New York. And I didn't know that existed. We do a lot of research on this show about a lot of uh, showbiz history, but I had never heard of the subway circuit. I think the Schuberts started it. We rehearsed in the basement of one of the 42nd Street movie theaters. We were underneath. In other words, we were below the ground level. Mm-hmm. And the entrance to the big room that we rehearsed in we had to go through the men's room of the theater to get to it. Great. <laughs> it was semi-inspiring. <laughs> Don't go away. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
Bag Post. We now return to Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal podcast. Tell us how Get Smart came about. Dan Melnick, who was a producer and the second in command of David uh, Susskind's company, which was a production company for television, films, and anything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dan Melnick called me and Mel Brooks into his office and said, what are the two biggest successes in worldwide show business today? Don't answer. I know you don't know the answer. I'll tell you. He would say to Mel and to me, Clouseau, Mm -hmm. Inspector Clouseau, and James Bond. Put them together. What do you got? And we both, Mel and I, kind of said, say no more. We get it. And that was the start of it. And Don Adams was not on the radar originally. I'd heard you say Orson Bean and Tom Poston, and you were looking at other people. We had lists of Mm -hmm. available male performers. But but Don Adams wasn't wasn't at the top of the list. Don Adams didn't come into the picture until you went from ABC to NBC? Yeah. It's funny because now it's hard to picture anyone else as Maxwell Smart. Oh, yeah. You can't have anyone do the voice. It's parody. Right. And I I heard that you are the one who invented the cone of silence. It's true. <laughs> That was for people who don't remember Get Smart that much is uh, Maxwell Smart would always tell the chief, I think this calls for the cone of silence. And it would come down (laughs) and it never worked. (laughs) It was like a giant piece of plexiglass with two two heads went into. And they'd start screaming at each other through the plexiglass and each one was going, what? Max, it seems to me that... Just a minute, Chief. Isn't this top security? Yeah. Well, shouldn't we activate the cone of silence? The cone of silence? Yes. All right, Max. Hodgkins. Yes, sir. Activate the cone of silence. The cone of silence? First of all, how much... How much do you know about chaos? What did you say, sir? (laughs) What? Chaos. Oh, chaos. Yes, of course. Well, that's an international criminal organization that was founded, oh, I think in 1957. How's that? What? 57. Agent 57 is in Hong Kong. Hong Kong. What about Hong Kong? What? Hong Kong. Why are we talking about Hong Kong? <laughs> Hong... Hodgkins, raise the cone of silence. What? Raise the cone of silence! Perhaps we could just talk softly, sir. <laughs> You liked the gadgets on the show, didn't you, Buck? You liked coming up with them. I loved them. Now, who came up with the shoe phone? I think Mel did. I think it was his first thing he said. Take off your shoe and hold it to your ear. (laughs) And Don looks at him and looks at me and with that look of, how long do we have to endure this crap? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> That's funny. Did, did ABC, I heard you say this in an interview, that ABC called the, thought the show was un-American? They didn't get it. They didn't get what you guys were going for. The guy at ABC whom we wrote the pilot for summarily rejected it, said we can't put this on in the evening when people are sitting down to have dinner. You've got a long, a 10-minute long garbage joke, <laughs> rubber garbage. It was part of the, the plot, such as it were. Mm-hmm. And I heard that back then the CIA used to call the producers of Get Smart and they, they'd ask them, where, where did these inventions come from? I don't know. That's news yeah. to me. Oh. oh, that's interesting. Can we ask you quickly, uh, Buck, about Captain Nice, which is a show we, Gilbert and I, were very fond of? In, in fact, before you say anything, I remember from my childhood, look, it's the man who flies around like an eagle. Look, it's the man who hates all that's illegal. Who is this man with arms built just like hammers? It's just some nun who flies around in pajamas. That's, that's no, no nuts on. That's Captain Nice. I'm appalled that you know this song. <laughs> but someone has to pass it on to future generations. Appalled. Well you. <laughs> I'm honored. Vic Mizzy and Jerry Fielding, two talented guys. That show had a great cast. I mean, William Daniels, Alice Ghostly. You, you put Byron Folger in there. Yes. And who was the girlfriend? He didn't he have a girlfriend? And Prentice. It was. Uh, oh, it was that's R- right. Richard's sister. Paul is kid's sister. Right. Right. And then that went on opposite uh, Mister Terrific. Yeah, the CBS came up with its own. That was a really dirty trick and stupid. Yeah, both the superhero parodies. Right. Playing against each other. That had John MacGyver on it, as I recall. Oh. That show. John <laughs> MacGyver. He, I think, was... <laughs> yes, sir. I have an important mission to send you on. This is very dangerous, sir. Very dangerous indeed. <laughs> Buck's laughing. Have you ever seen anybody do John MacGyver, Buck? I've never even seen John MacGyver do John MacGyver. <laughs> But I don't have to now. I can just call Elber and say, do that guy that I never heard of before, and he will. Good. I remember, oh, the theme song to Mr. Terrific. I don't know. Don't. It didn't have words, but it was. Now you're just tor- now you're just torturing him. <laughs> Tell, let's talk about uh, uh, Buck some of the some of the screenplays, and we talked about them in the intro. For, first, I just want to ask about about Catch Twenty Two, mm-hmm. which is a movie we've discussed here on this show. I just told you we just had Richard Benjamin here, and you say when you when you do an adaptation for something like that that you want to please the author. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and Heller liked the picture. He liked the he liked what you did with it. He told me he did. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean he really did. <laughs> he told me he did, and uh, and we had a an eminently sensible conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not an easy book to adapt, I'm sure. It's impossible. Yeah. And you did the screen version of Day of the Dolphin. And Unhappily, I believe yes. Yeah, not a not a not a project he enjoyed writing. Yeah, that was with George C. Scott. 
Mike Nichols. Yes. And you didn't like the book to begin with. I thought the book was silly. Mm -hmm. I don't mind silly. In fact, sometimes silly can be a whole movie. But in this case. But you did it to work with Mike and to to spend a little time on that island. On a lot of islands. Yeah. And just getting back to Catch-22 for a minute, I heard you tell a very interesting story about Orson Welles. and, And Richard was regaling us with stories about meeting Orson. But what was that business where he had 50-foot people and 25-foot people? Orson told us early on, like the first day he was there, he was describing his technique for getting things done. And a lot of it, he said, is not wasting time. It's just knowing how to not waste any more time than you have to. <laughs> and what was, the, what was the bit about the people that fell into the different categories? He said, well, there are all sorts of people who want to talk to me every day when you're, I'm sure, when you're shooting, I'm sure the same thing. So very early, like the first day of production, one of my production assistants and I go off somewhere and we write a list of all the guys working on the show that have any reason to interface with me. And I tell him, there's just too many people want to talk to me. It eats most of the day up. So what do you want us to do? He said, well, I'm going to do what I've done with every show I've done for the past 20 years. That little guy, Ben, with the irritating voice, he's a 50-yard person. (laughs) What do you mean? He can't come nearer to me than 50 yards. (laughs) What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to put down lines like at a football field? And Orson said, yes. And one of the others, so he had a list of 50 <laughs> yarders that were way out there and had to yell their questions to him. That's fantastic. There were 25 yarders and there were five yarders. And how did the graduate come about? How did it come about? Yeah. Well, how did, well, how did it find its way? How did the, 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 the job of, of adapting Charles Webb's novel find its way into your hands? Mike said to me one day, have you read this book? And I said, yes, because I had. And I didn't want to lie that early. So, (laughs) and I had read it. I thought it was terrific. It's somewhat simple. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in the nicest sense. Because I always add this uh, little codicil to that speech. Because both Larry Terman, the producer who bought the book and brought it to Mike, and Mike and I, we both totally identified with Benjamin, the protagonist of the book and subsequently of the film. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's interesting about it is 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 Nichols' uh, boldness in casting Dustin Hoffman. They it, they originally Re- wanted Robert Redford. No, Mike wanted Robert Redford. Yeah, the studio. I didn't hear anything. Grodin gave a, a, a convincing audition, didn't he? Charles Grodin? Grodin was brilliant, as mm-hmm. he always is. Always brilliant, yeah. Love Man Heaven Can Wait, too. Yeah. Which you also wrote. But but it's it's interesting, too. I mean, there's, there's a wonderful Vanity Fair uh, a piece about the making of The Graduate and that, that Hoffman thought he was all wrong for it from the very beginning. He kept saying, what am I doing out here? I'm a New York actor. I'm a Jewish guy from New York. I should be on the stage. But... Uh, Nichols was looking for an underdog quality that Redford didn't bring to the table. I remember Nichols said in an interview, he said he met with Robert Redford 
And he said, have you ever not gotten laid? <laughs> right. And, right. Have you ever struck out with a girl? Yeah. Right. And he said, what do you mean? Right. And and he knew then he was going with Dustin Hoffman. Right. Right. But it was still kind of brave to to, to cast someone like that or, or someone who was the, 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 the I guess the, the feeling at the time was that someone so Jewish in a lead. Well, that it was it was it was a little bit innovative. Yeah, I don't think it was about Jewishness. So, I mean, they like to say it was because it made for good jokes. I see. You think God is a Chinaman? You know that it. Uh, Dustin was very good at making fun of himself. Mm-hmm. Well, he's so great in the film. You want to tell Buck about how you lost a part to Dustin Hoffman? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> Years ago, I auditioned of. Uh, for Warren Beatty in the new Dick Tracy. And he was telling me, oh, you're, you're, you're perfect for this. You're definitely, we want you. When we were writing this, we just had you in mind. And so then I was already secure that I had the part. And then after a month or so, my agent calls and says, oh, they're going with someone else. <laughs> and I said, Who? And he goes, Dustin Hoffman. And I thought, when were they actually, when was I running neck and neck with Dustin Hoffman for a part? It's it's kind of like, I always say, the only way my name and Dustin Hoffman's name could be in the same sentence is, I've seen Gilbert Gottfried's acting, and he's no Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> or I've seen... Who is the other person in this formula? <laughs> well, it's Warren Beatty. He also lost a part to Billy Barty. Oh, which yes. You, which you would appreciate. <laughs> he was too short. <laughs> and also, when, when they hired Dustin Hoffman. Who's they? And then uh, the studio. Or oh, for, oh the, right, for the, for the graduate. They hired yeah. Dustin Hoffman, and then... A short while later, the grad, uh, the Godfather comes out with Al Pacino, and then there was De Niro. And, oh, that Godfather. Yeah. 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 And at the time, uh, De Niro, Hoffman, and Pacino, uh, the press was calling them the ugly actors. They weren't really ugly, but they weren't like- Misfits. Be- yeah. Misfits, yeah. They weren't like beautiful, like Paul Newman or something. So you like had who you, you are. You had, yes. Yeah. You had a shot, Gil. <laughs> you had a shot to be a leading man in the seventies. I see you and uh, Redford in the remake of The Sting, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm willing to work on it for very little money. I look forward to that. One. You're in the Robert Shaw part, though, Gil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a great idea, Buck. Since we brought up Grodin, can we talk a little bit about Heaven Can Wait? Sure. So, so Beatty approached you and said, uh, "Let's let's remake." Here comes Mr. Jordan. Is that how that came together? I th- more or less, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think he probably pumped it up with names and things. He was going to get first. He was gonna. I said, "Well." Who do you get to play Mr. Jordan? Who do you get to replace the greatest voice in films today? Which was... Claude Rains. Claude Rains, yeah. Claude Rains. Right. Women sitting in the theater would cry when he began to speak. Claude Rains, really? 
Oh well, yeah. Wow. And I heard originally they they wanted Cary Grant in the remake well, and having the no remake. Oh well, they would take anyone who was famous. What do they care? If Warren and he was could sweet talk a really famous actor into playing a part, you think they're going to say no? <laughs> sure. And yeah, and Mason was great in that part. Yes. Wonderful. Well, Mason is the next great voice. Yeah. Go ahead. Get, fa- favor him. Favor him, Gil. Here you go, Buck. Joe, from this point on, you're not going to have any member. Any memory. So we could have had Gilbert doing it. Could <laughs> have saved a buck on James Mason. It was our arrangement, Joe. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? Yeah, you could have looped it all afterwards anyway. So. <laughs> you could have looped James Mason. What was da- how how is directing a movie with Warren Beatty? How does that work exactly since you both since you shared directing credit? Well, you forget people tend to forget that hundreds, possibly thousands of films have been directed by more than one person. Right. And in some cases more than two. Right. But how did you guys, uh, w- w- was that a necessity because he was in almost every scene? It certainly made things easier that there was always someone to stand behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Great cast. Uh, not in, just not just Mason, but Diane Cannon. Uh, oh, and Jack Warden. And the great Jack Warden. Yeah. 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 One of Gilbert's favorite actors that we talk about. Do you have any memories of Warden or Mason? Anything specific come to mind? Didn't Dick tell you the funny stories about him and... Uh, who else was in Last of Sheila? From oh, Tesla. Raquel Welch. Oh, Raquel Welch. Raquel and a couple of others. And Diane Cannon again. Yeah. Right. James was not happy about being stuck on a relatively small boat <laughs> for two or three months, and the women drove him nuts. <laughs> Why were they getting to him? I think the third actress was Joan Hackett. They were noisy, self-centered women. He didn't like the sound of their voice. He just he turned to Dick one day, practically in the middle of a take, and said, Richard, well, you can do it. Richard, uh, you know, I think our next film should be a prison film, man's prison, <laughs> on a rock somewhere where the food is crappy and there's no makeup. <laughs> I remember Warren Beatty saw me, he and Dustin Hoffman saw me at Catch a Rising Star in New York. Well, they and, must have been researching Ishtar. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 And and Warren Beatty became a fan of mine for like about a month. <laughs> Listen, not bad. It's tough to find superstars with really long, fill it in. Ways to think about something for long periods of time. It's nice that he was a fan for a month. Yeah, that he, was flattering. Give give Buck just a little more James Mason because he was enjoying that. Oh, okay. Here's James Mason in um, what you call it? Oh, A Star Is Born. Congratulations, my dear. I seem to have made it just in time. I had a speech all prepared in my head, but it seems to have gone out of it. Well, look, there's no need to be formal. I I, I know most of you men on a first-name basis. 
Well, the point of my speech is I need a job. Yes, that's it. I need a job. I'm not confined to drama. I could do comedy as well. (laughs) What do you think, Buck? I think we set in motion a redo of all of James's great films, and Gilbert will be the voice of James and maybe a couple other people. Do you do Streisand? (laughs) You do Streisand. Gilbert in Odd Man Out. (laughs) You told a story. You were playing a joke on um, Dave Garraway and Barbara Walters. Oh, well, that was with Alan Abel when they did the... uh... That was the Cine. That was the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. No one understands that appellation, and I don't much understand it myself. You said that at one point, Barbara Walters, she thought it was an actual group. Oh, absolutely, she fell for it. (laughs) But thousands did. Mm -hmm. And she started to argue very seriously... And slowly, and she started to say, now, oh, I... Okay. Let me quote it exactly okay, so okay. the point doesn't get mixed up. So Barbara Walters is a guest on the show and a gorgeous little yummy French starlet called Mylène de Mongeau. Uh So she said, well, you're trying to dress these animals, but these animals are already dressed, Mr. Henry. Thank you for remembering my name. <laughs> And the gender. Uh, so she says, yeah, I have two, I don't know what she said, Newfoundland Terriers. Is there such a thing? Something like that, yeah. And and she said something else. At home. And when I first heard what you were doing, I took a look at them and I realized they don't need to be dressed. <laughs> Men and women and animals are all dressed. Even I, if you were to know me better, even I have a big black, and I thought, oh, my God, what is she going to tell us? Do I dare interrupt now and never let her finish the sentence? That's great. Yes, yeah, she said, I have a big black hairy. And she paused. Yeah. yeah. And the cameras began to shake because the guys were getting hysterical and couldn't control their hands. <laughs> I worked with Barbara Walters for a couple of years, and I absolutely believe that she fell for that hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, why do you call Richard Benjamin, I found this interesting, Buck, a boulevardier? Do, am I pronouncing that right? Yes. Well, a boulevardier was a kind of actor in my younger days. Mm-hmm. You knew exactly what kind of parts a boulevardier played and why he was called that. And he was defined by the parts he played. Would a Clifton Webb fall into that uh, category? Yes. Okay. I got you now. And maybe you don't remember. There's no reason you should. You're only 12 or 13 years old. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Is that Clifton Webb started as a song and dance man and a great one. I didn't know that. Did you know that? No. That's good stuff. That's a surprise. And he danced and sang in the first meaningful thing I ever saw on Broadway. What was that? It was a musical called As Thousands Cheer. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with that. 
You were f- you were four years old, if I understand correctly. I went to see it on my fourth birthday. There you in go. Fact. There you go. That's weird that we pulled Clifton Webb out of the air. And Clifton Webb was in one of the first uh, film adaptations of Titanic. Uh, yes. You were with Barbara yes, he, Stanwyck, I he think. He played a lot of captains. Yeah. He liked to have the cap on. I, I remember in this one, the ship's going down. He puts his grandson into one of the uh, lifeboats. Yeah. And then later on, as Clifton Webb is standing there, the grandson is standing next to him saying, I wanted to stay with you. And he goes, I've never been more proud of you than I am at this moment. Never heard you do Which Clifton Webb. Which is more than his acting teacher could say <laughs> at this time. That's funny. Well, speaking of Benjamin, we just want to ask you quickly about Quark because we talked about it with with Richard, and, and uh, it's a sh- it's a show that a lot of people. I know you said it was it had problems, and it was mishandled in a, in a in a way, and it turned into a Star Trek parody instead of the satire, the science fiction satire that you intended it to be. But even now, a lot of people have a lot of fondness for it. I know. I'm always surprised. I'm gr- surprised that people have fondness for anything, up to and including their wives and children, <laughs> but not their pets. Um, it had a great cast. It had Richard. It had Tim Thomerson, Conrad Janis. I mean, very funny people. And and you were ahead of a lot of shows now in, in the show uh, That Was the Week That Was. It was better than people remember. Because it was so bad-mouthed. Mm-hmm. Political satire has a tough road to hoe. Sure. And it was preempted a lot, wasn't it? Endlessly by Republican announcements. Right, because obviously there was a show they were threatened by. And now it's like so common to see political comedy, but back then... There isn't any show without it. Yeah. And And I remember just the first two lines, and that was... That was the week that was. It's over. Let it go. <laughs> it's an impossible song, but she did brilliant stuff with it. Uh, who was this singer? Nancy. The hell was her name? Oh, uh, yeah, I know. Beautiful blonde with a formidable body yeah. and <laughs> long blonde hairs. I remember Phyllis Newman. Yeah, that was not Phyllis. No, I remember Bob Dishy, Phyllis Newman. What was her name? I, I, I know you. Tom Lehrer was on that show, for God's sake. Tom Lehrer wrote those lyrics. Yeah. Tom Lehrer was the one. He used to be on Channel 13, like PBS, all the time, because he had that show in Washington. Political satire. Yeah. yeah. And Gardner and Caruso were writers on that show. Right, Buck? Yes. Two guys you, again, you worked with at Get Smart. I heard you say a lot of those episodes were just erased and taped over. That was the week that was. I, and it's hard to find them. Well, because they, the Museum of Broadcasting was sweet enough to unearth as many clips of that was the week that was that they could find. And I said, well, what do you got? Yeah, I'll show up, but what do you got? I'd like to know what I'm going to be watching. They said, well, we've got... So and so and so and so and so and so. And they named a whole bunch of stuff that I wasn't sure I wanted to see again. 
But I did. Mm-hmm. I watched it all one evening. It was fun to watch again. I'll bet. See all my friends, see who was still apparently alive. They disappeared. People taped, they were taped over in those days, like the old Carson shows. They weren't saved. They weren't preserved. I have more Carson shows with me on it than Carson's got. You did a lot of Carson's. I did a lot. I did 40 some odd, I think. Wow. Ridiculous. And you were one time talking about how writers, uh, even throughout the 60s, were they had there was a heavy influence and a shadow from the House of Un-American Activities. Oh, yeah. Well, everyone was conscious as as soon as the first two or three guys lost their careers, and then one or two lost their marriages and their lives. That was when they were accusing people in show business of being communists, like writers, actors, singers. Well, sure. Zero Mostel and Martin Ritten, a lot of people. Dalton Trumbo. Yeah. My screenwriting Most professor. of them got their revenge mm-hmm. in having a late career that was as good, if not better, than any career they would have had under ordinary circumstances. It's easy for me to say. I don't know if it's true, but... I say a lot of things that I don't know if they're true when I'm, f- when I'm forming them in what's left of my brain. Buck, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wind it down, but I just wanted to ask you, if you, you worked with so many characters, uh, people like John Cassavetes and, and Nicholas Rogue and, and, and Belushi, and do and, uh, you have any memories of these people? Or Brando, working with Brando on Candy? Oh, that's, that's a long, dense chapter i'll bet i'll I'll bet (laughs) have you had you you never thought to write a memoir huh about i have and i'm in the process of doing it oh good wonderful yeah that's good news candy was a weird film yes it was but a great cast yeah and you could substitute a lot of words for weird in that I'm just going to ask you one question that came for, for, for you from one of our listeners. A guy named Robert Schleuder wanted to know. He said, please ask Buck how much, I know Buck was a sight reader, ask uh, Buck how much of Samurai Delicatessen was scripted versus improvised. Do you remember? It's all, it's all, all of the, they were, there were 10 of them that I did. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone else did them. No, I don't think so. John did the character only when I was there to back it up with my nebbishy dope that never, I like the fact that I never could remember from one event to the next that this guy was going to chop off my arm. <laughs> You'd think I would have worn a, you know, a complete suit of armor right. going into that deli. Listen, you do really fantastic work. That is gorgeous. Can you do me one little favor? Could you trim away some of the fat? I distinctly said no fat. There's a lot of fat hanging off. Of I, I really said no fat. And it's a... Hey, no, 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 wait a minute. Oh, don't take it personally. It's okay. Look, I probably... I, I probably shouldn't be eating that anyway because it's filled with spices. It gives me heartburn. And... What the hell? You only live once. I'll deal with the pain later. <laughs> would it be uh, would it be too much to ask if you could cut it in half? <laughs> 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 
That's absolutely beautiful. Thank you very much. That's terrific. Uh, one other thing. What you about? Do you think you could break a 20? And then in Samurai Stockbroker, you were actually injured on set. Oh, yeah. I guess I have more questions about that than anything else I've ever done. That's weird that so many people ask you about that. Well, you, I guess it was dramatic to see Yeah, if you weren't prepared for it, you didn't know what was going to happen. Suddenly, I'm ducking away from a prop and then my leg is, my, my pants are shredded and my leg is bleeding. You remember this, Gil? Belushi hit yeah. him with the sword. And and then the head. didn't you, you were walking around with a, a bandage on your face. Well, because it was SNL. There were doctors in the house, including Belushi's personal doctor. Hmm. So Belushi spent a lot of the five-minute wait while the commercials were being shown, sidling up to Lauren and saying, you know, I know all the dialogue in Buck's next piece. If you wanted to sit him down somewhere and treat that leg, because he's bleeding right through his pants. And uh, Lauren didn't pay any attention to that, because <laughs> he knew me and he knew John. Right. Uh but so, you were such a pro that you went on with the scene, and you had you had to in the stockbroker scene you had to run through the wall. Yeah, yeah. Everybody got better and better and better because we went to a there were five five open minutes where we could do whatever we felt like. There was a, two long commercials and something else, and uh, when we came back to live, Chevy was doing the news of the update, and he was in a shoulder harness as though. <laughs> He'd broken his shoulder, a rib or two, and his arm. <laughs> and as the evening wore on, and it wore, <laughs> when the next hour was done, everyone in the studio had Band-Aids, bandages. Right, I remember. <laughs> all the guys on the cameras, it was... Well, that's the great thing about live television. Yes. Yeah. Now, the great thing about hiring people over the long haul. Just funny. Send me funny, I'll worry about the rest of it. Right. Now, there was a story, I told it on the show, and I asked Tim Conway about it, and he confirmed it, about Pat McCormick and uh, Helicopter. Yeah, it's a true story, but I doubt that he told you all of it. (laughs) (laughs) There's more to it. tell me then. (laughs) There's actually more to this story. Well, many of us have wives or girlfriends, and we jeopardize them by telling this story. I see. Well, we don't want them to push you on the spot. And we have contracts. Some do in various places. Yeah, I, there are there are morals clauses everywhere. Yeah, I I had heard Pat McCormick and his showbiz pals, most of them writers would like to get together and outdo each other. Each one would take turns taking the other ones out to lunch. Hosting, yeah. Yeah, and each one would do it by like a bigger restaurant and fancier things. And then Pat McCormick has McCormick, everyone... I don't want to interrupt, but let me just add bits and pieces. Oh, okay. McCormick was the first one up. <laughs> I think... I think uh, 
Mazursky or someone chaired the meeting and said, okay. Paul Mazursky. Yeah, this is going to cost somebody some money. Who dares go first? And McCormick was flat on the table, screaming and yelling with his hands in the air. And I'm saying, yeah, I vote for Pat. Everybody voted for Pat. (laughs) And uh, So he went up first in the helicopter. McCormick. Well, it's more complicated than that. <laughs> okay. He, <laughs> by first time, and he he said, "Yes, I'll take the first lunch of the month." And we thought it can't be better than this. We're all screwed, actually, because McCormick will put us all in the toilet, <laughs> which he proceeded to do. Shall I tell you how? Yeah, yes. might as well. <laughs> it's a story that's been around for some years, anyway. So we were all working for various television shows we were writing. I was writing for, who was I writing for? I can't remember. Gary Moore show or was it that far back? No. No. Uh-huh. I think I was writing for Steve. Uh-huh. And uh, McCormick and Mazursky, there are good stories here, were writing for Danny Kay oh, and yeah. his show. Right. And and then I heard everyone was invited to a heliport. No. No. Limos came and picked all of us up at our various places of work. <laughs> so we we got reports later of this mysterious long black limo sidling into the parking area of where was I was at ABC on on Vine. The others were on more uh, expensive properties, I think. Hmm. Where were you working, Gilbert, at that time? <laughs> <laughs> he would have joined you happily. Uh, oh, but when I, you hear the rest of it, there's no one in this room who wouldn't join me happily. So we're driven by these limousines. We're not told anything. And when we ask questions of the driver, the driver would turn around and say, oh, we're not allowed to speak out loud, sir. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and McCormick, when he wanted to, could really look threatening because he was, what, six foot six, would yeah. you say? Yeah, something and like that. 300 it. and something pounds. Were you a little scared while this was going on? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and we were driven on in our limos out on the field at LAX, one of those private fields. Mm-hmm. And we were... The guy gunned the limo and squealed up as near as he could get to this big helicopter. (laughs) Everyone out. They all, the three, I think there were three limos. There might have been four, but we could hear our friends. Everyone was a comedy writer and uh, they're screaming punchlines at us. It was a game in which they yelled, you yelled the punchline. Somebody immediately made up the joke that had the punchline. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I spent the weekend with Eleanor Roosevelt, but I got to say this about her. When she isn't doing this, she's doing that, you know, something really nasty. (laughs) Oh, I was assaulted for it in the next couple of days after we did this show and Somebody said, lay off him. It's a joke. They're just jokes. Nobody was killed for a joke. Well, those of us like me, historians in the group, I should have come up with five rejoinders, but I couldn't. (laughs) 
Gilbert, you, you're fast and funny, and you're a compendium of oddball facts. He is. What should I have said? <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's the most flattering description. Odd and funny enough. Well, you're, I could have condensed it all. You're a polymath. <laughs> Isn't he? Uh, yes. Look it up if you think I've insulted you. <laughs> now, but you, I heard when you got to the airport, you were all given a paper bag with like an apple and a, and a tuna sandwich. We were given, yeah, we were given a, a, a box, a carton with lunch in it. <laughs> I don't know where McCormick picked up this rapidly rotting food, but... They were looking at this like, what the fuck is this? This is our great lunch? <laughs> our gourmet yeah. lunch, yeah. So we all had our little lunch boxes, and I guess there were some beverages, probably some of a boozy uh, ability, but mostly just soft drinks. And then there were a couple of figures that we didn't recognize. We didn't think they were prominent uh, comedy writers, <laughs> but they... Because they looked and dressed like prominent hookers. <laughs> Which, of course, is what they were. So this had taken a lot of research on Mazursky's part. He had all our home addresses, which he gave in the order that he wanted. He gave them to the pilots. And each in kind, the chopper would fly over and hover over our house while one of the girls serviced us. <laughs> So it's true. All these years later. And and I heard the ending was that one of the writers when he got home he uh his wife said, you know, so how was your night? And he goes, you know, okay. And then he goes, how was your night? And she said it was okay, but there was a helicopter circling the house. <laughs> <laughs> And it sounded like somebody was swallowing. <laughs> this is a, an historic moment in the history of this show. Buck Henry is confirming the helicopter, the heli Pat McCormick helicopter story. I've told that story a bunch of times, but boy, to get it from an eyewitness is amazing. Mouth witness. Um, <laughs> what, uh, it's showbiz history. How, how? What percentage of the people you told it to believed you? Believed, <laughs> well, wait, say, believed we, that the anecdote was real. We discussed it with Ronnie Shell. Uh, who else? Ronnie was one of our group. There you go. I, <laughs> he confirmed. I, I remember I once met Tim Conway, and I walked over to him, and I said, I heard a story. It's probably bullshit uh, about Pat McCormick. And he goes, Helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a shorthand for all of these indecencies that helped us get through the day. Fantastic. You know, we all had to go home and face our nearest and dearest. All of them would say, so what happened? What was the big deal? Where did you all go and what did you all do? <laughs> Wonderful. Buck, we can't thank you enough for this. It's been a hugely satisfying pleasure, but I can't think why. <laughs>
<laughs> is Alan Abel still with us? He's a funny guy. He is still with yeah. us. We should talk to he, him. Uh, oh. And he's still got the same wife. His daughter, his adorable daughter, has had a child of her own. So mm-hmm. Alan's got a grandchild. Oh, it's wonderful. Whoever thought that his genes would stretch over more than a half a generation. <laughs> Very clever fellow. Very clever. Yeah. Yeah. We got to find Alan Abel. He's got to have stories. This was great. Oh, this was a lot of fun. We co- we covered a lot of ground, Buck. But there's a lo- there's a lot of ground to cover. And we ended with filth, <laughs> which I think is always important. <laughs> if the Senate and the House would end their sessions with instead of a prayer, ten minutes of filth of the aristocrats, <laughs> <laughs> it'd be a better so world. I guess we'll start wrapping up. Yeah, we'll let Buck get to it. Buck, what, you, does the does the memoir have a title, a working title? No, no. We hope the helicopter story turns up in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I am so thrilled that you told that story. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember who else we told it to. But, but se- well, several people. I don't. Maybe it was Norman Lear. Maybe I can't remember. You know, you know about you know about Pat's untellable jokes. Oh, go ahead. We don't. There's a long list of them. They're jokes that he invented and wrote that cannot be told in a public forum. <laughs> so, I mean, I thought about it all the time. I was watching Gilbert's Dirty Joke movie, which I love. <laughs> wow. Isn't that nice? Buck, thank you. That's uh, Gilbert Gottfried Dirty Jokes, uh, my DVD. I'm telling you, folks, if you want to laugh, that's the one that will make you laugh. Long and loud. So so Buck did research on on you. Yes. (laughs) And to get a plug from Buck Henry on it, I can't ask for a better endorsement. How nice. Yeah. Gilbert Gottfried Dirty Jokes. You can get it on GilbertGottfried.com. Well, we turn the mics off, uh, uh, Buck. You're going to have to tell us where we can get our hands on some of those McCormick jokes. If I can figure out what the answer is, you'll... Be the first and the only. Okay. <laughs> okay. We appreciate. We appreciate that. We didn't ask you about what's up, Doc, or to die for a movie that I love, uh, or lo- lots of other stuff. But there's 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 a lot there's a lot of ground to cover. But we covered a fair amount of it. I met a guy by the way the other night at a party who who said he wrote episodes of Captain Nice. What was his? His name is Arnold Margolin. He's Stuart Margolin's brother. Oh wow. Well, it sounds. Possible. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. He wrote Captain Nice. Thought maybe you'd remember him. It's been a long time. Anyway, we gotta get these uh we gotta get these Pat McCormick jokes. <laughs> we were in a nightclub listening to McCormick do some nonsense and uh, somebody, maybe me, said, Pat, tell tell him the joke that you told me night before last that made that person faint. <laughs> he said, it's a question. Well, there are two of them. Mm-hmm. One is a question and answer joke. What's the difference between a dead baby and a bathtub? And people look scared <laughs> at, at the stage. Some people start walking out, but it starts with a crawl. And it's like the ages of man. <laughs> they crawl from their chair toward the door, and then they sort of get up. And knee crawl, and then two hands and two feet, and then they're running in the distance. Uh, 
What is the difference, Pat, between a dead baby and a bathtub? You can't fuck a bathtub. <laughs> I think it's a great example of classic on the spot. <laughs> wow. It kept me happy for a couple of years. <laughs> and then I was staying in the Warwick Hotel trying to finish the script for uh, Owl and the Pussycat. And uh, George Siegel came and joined me and we went. We were going up in the elevator to see somebody. I can't remember. McCormick got in the same. We all came in from the lobby, Pat and George and me. We're in the elevator and there is a family of tourists and they see George and I think they're going to faint. I mean, the women, that's a movie star. They, they look at McCormick and then looked away. <laughs> and they said something like, are you like an actor? Or, and he said something funny and they said, no, no, you're a, com you're a comic. Are you at a club or anything? And uh, um, it was dirtier than the one I've already told you. Oh, <laughs> wow. God. Now I and desperately the same want level of funny. There's also that story of him giving directions where he, where, he, where he opens his fly. It's not him. It's Jonathan who did it. Oh, it was Jonathan Winters. How about that? He did it first and maybe last because everyone else was scared to. <laughs> He's standing at a bar and a woman says she wants to get to the moon rock, but she doesn't know how to get there. Not the moon rock. There was an, a place, a nightclub restaurant called Moon Garden or something like that. He said, oh, I know where it is. I've been there. And she said, can you draw me a little map? She's, he said, well, I'll give you a better way to, mem to remember it. And he opened his pants, pulled out his dick, laid it in the palm of his hand, <laughs> and ran his hand along the blue, the blue uh, vein. So you go up here to Sunset, go right here on Sunset Boulevard. You're going toward Malibu here. <laughs> Jonathan Winters. That's great. See, you cor you corrected us. We thought we were told it was Pat McCormick. Well, I think he told Jonathan. He gave Jonathan the joke. Oh, I see. It's more fun with Jonathan, I think. <laughs> Knowing that there weren't too many people in the world who would say, oh, yeah, I'll do that. But Jonathan was one of them. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Gil? Oh, okay. Buck, we enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Hey, so did I. A lot of fun. It was fun. a pleasure. And thank you for that compliment. I can't get over that. Where do you see his documentary? You'll like that too. I'm sure I will. So this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And our guest has been a guy who, well, what hasn't he done? Writer, producer, director, actor. He's done it all. Uh, the great Buck Henry. And he was Lord Douchebag. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and always will be. Well, we, we wanted to get you here for a long time. We've done 160 of these, and this was a thrill. So thanks. Thanks, guys. Yeah. We look forward to that memoir. Okay, Frank, you'll be one of the first or second to get a copy. I hope so. <laughs> and when we get off the mic, we're going to demand more Pat McCormick jokes. Thank you, Buck. Thank and thanks, you. thanks to Alan's White Bell, too. Jesus loves you more than you will know.
Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Our researchers are Paul Rayburn and Andrea Simmons. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, Nancy Chinchar, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance.